0: The scripture reading today comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 22. In the blue uh, pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 61. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 22. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more.
1: Father, thank you. As the word was read, as we have a large passage we're looking at today, that you will uh, grant us the ability to study it, to learn from it, and to apply it into our lives. Even from a text that we rarely go into deeply, we know that there is a word for us from you. So speak, O Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. My daughter is in second grade at a Christian school that's committed to classical education uh, and also to a collaborative effort where parents take an active role in their child's education. And so on one of those home days, I get the privilege of being there and I get to study world history with her. And one of the books that we have to read on ancient history has a whole chapter on the code of Hammurabi. Now, if you have no idea who or what that is. Don't feel bad. I was just as clueless as you. I don't remember being taught anything about a Haram Hammurabi when I was a kid, but man, uh, what they're teaching these days in this school is amazing. Basically, uh, he was an ancient Babylonian king in the 18th century BC, who developed a whole system of laws in order to uh, rule his vast Babylonian empire with order and justice, because he didn't want the people's obedience just because they feared his army. He wanted their obedience because they respected his laws, and so he carved them into a stone monument, which have been preserved to this day, and they are really the first set of written laws that we know of. They predate the Mosaic law that we're going to be looking at. Uh, the this morning. They predate it by centuries. And as my daughter and I read some of the laws found in the Code of Hammurabi, it was quite interesting. Now I know what an ancient Babylonian would do if someone accidentally flooded his field or stole one of his goats. Now I know what an ancient Babylonian farmer would do if his neighbor returned his plow broken or didn't even return it at all. That's interesting, but. It doesn't seem all that relevant to me or to my daughter. I, I, I don't really feel like I have to keep anything that I find in the code of Hammurabi. It's interesting reading, but it's not really authoritative. It doesn't really shape my life today. But isn't that how many of us read the Mosaic Law? What we find here in the book of Exodus, Today we are going to be covering a large section starting from chapter 20 verse 18 all the way to chapter 23 verse 19 and it's it's a good chunk of 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 scripture that that in it seems like it's just a a seemingly random list of laws addressing common crimes and civil disputes that you would expect to find in ancient times. This section of Exodus is what is commonly called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant, and it covers situations on what do you do if you lend a neighbor your ox, uh, but they're careless and your ox dies or is seriously injured or... You know, what do you do if your neighbor leaves a pit uncovered and your ox uh, or your donkey falls into it and dies? And, and, and then you have these seemingly random prohibitions like, you shall not permit a sorceress to live, okay? Uh, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All right, I'll keep that in mind. Um, so just like, you know, the, the, the Code of Hammurabi, the book of the covenant can be fascinating for some, boring for others, but we're all wondering if these laws have really any relevance for us today and any authority on us that we, might, that we have to obey what it says. And I think really that's the challenge for us as we get into this section of Exodus. How are Christians today supposed to read and apply the book of the covenant? Or are we even supposed to? Like Maybe this section is not even relevant to us anymore since we're under the new covenant. We're no longer under the old. So like I said, we're covering a large section today, and so of course there's no way we're going to be covering every single verse. Um, you know, it wasn't even time to read all the verses. So um, what, I, what I plan to do is to focus on what is commonly known as the threefold use of the law, and I'm going to rely on three metaphors to do just that. If you want to look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline, and we're going to consider first the law as restraint, second the law as mirror, and third the law as teacher. And as I unpack these three metaphors, uh, these three uses of the law, I'm going to make reference to the various verses that are going to be found in our larger text. But friends, my bigger goal this morning is to demonstrate how the book of the covenant finds its fulfillment ultimately in the person and work of Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that means Christians, if you are a worshiper and follower of Jesus, Christians are not under the book of the covenant like the Israelites were. The Old Testament law is no longer normative for believers, but but there are still moral norms and commands that Christians must obey. And so if there are any laws to be restated or principles to be drawn out from this Old Testament text that apply to us today, Christians obey, not because it's written in the Mosaic Covenant, but because those laws and those principles have been restated in the New Testament and they've been written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the whole blessing of the new covenant, of being in a new covenant with God. And so by the end of this message, I'm going to exhort every believer here to obey the law, to obey what the Apostle Paul calls the law of Christ, which is really the law of love, to love one another. So we are still under law, but the law of Christ, the law of love, that's going to be the main emphasis This morning. But let's begin with that first metaphor I mentioned the metaphor of the law as restraint. The law is a restrainer of evil. As we'll demonstrate, the law is ineffective at changing human hearts or producing in us a desire to obey that it can't do. But the law can restrain sinners from committing all the sins that we are actually capable of committing. It can't make you good, but it can keep you from doing all the evil in you, that in, in the, all the evil that your sinful flesh could do. This, of course, is based on the scriptural premise that we are all deeply corrupted by the effects of sin. We are all depraved and capable of the most heinous of sins. I, I think we would all admit that we're sinners that none of us are perfect, but we watch the news and we read the paper and we hear reports of great sinners doing atrocious things and committing unspeakable crimes, and we think to ourselves, what is wrong with these people? Who could do such a thing? And the Bible says, you could, I could. We could because we share the same fallen condition as the worst of sinners. What's wrong with these people is what's wrong with us. Our hearts are bent towards sin and selfishness. So thank God for the law. For in the law, the worst impulses of our sinful hearts are curbed. They're restrained. By God's common grace, the conscious the consciences of the vast majority of the human race are not completely seared to a sense of shame or to a fear of punishment. In other words, by God's common grace, we're not all sociopaths. That's a good thing. Thank God for that. So when a people... Are collectively taught the law of God, when a society orders itself accordingly, the law still has an effect through its demands, its threats, its punishments, to stem the tide and to keep us from acting upon our worst inclinations. We see this kind of restraining effect here in chapter 21. If you look in chapter 21, verses 1 to 6, in these laws that are regulating the practice of slavery, among the Israelites, you see a restraining effect. Now up front, I, I do want to say clearly that slavery is an ancient practice that has always been rooted in human depravity. It is not a part of God's good order, not a part of God's good creation. Now, I know we can, we can point out that Israel's slave, practice of slavery was different than the chattel slavery that mars our nation's past in that slavery in Israel was not race-based and it, and it did not involve kidnapping and slave trading. And we can also point out that it was a common means of getting out of debt where you sell yourself into a form of indentured servitude until you can pay it off. You know, even with those nuances, which are important to mention, but still, even, even so, th- there's really no point in trying to justify Israel's practice of slavery because the Bible doesn't even try The book of the covenant, I hope you understand, is is not establishing or endorsing slavery. What the book of the covenant is doing is regulating an existing practice, regulating slavery among the Israelites, and restraining the inherent evils of it. Just consider how it prevents lifelong servitude by enforcing a Sabbath. This this law enforces a Sabbath where in the seventh year, that slave is set free, even if he still has outstanding debt. Compared to the other nations in Canaan, where, where Israel will soon settle down, this provision of freedom in the seventh year was unparalleled. It made Israel holy, as in being set apart, as being different from her neighbor's. Now, it goes on to say in chapter 21, verse 3, that if the slave entered with a family, then he gets to leave with his family intact. That makes total sense to us. But then in verse 4, there is this stipulation that if he gained a wife and family while under servitude, then he goes out alone and his family remains with his master. And I know, I know that seems cruel, but at the same time, you know, it could be seen as a means to protect his wife and kids from his own recklessness. Because it was probably his carelessness that led him to be in such great debt that he was compelled to sell himself into slavery. And so, if he hasn't reformed by the time he's set free, he might fall into ruin again. And this time, he's going to drag a whole family down with him. And so, while he's out there getting his act together, his wife and his kids are still being provided for by his master. And once he has the funds, well, then he can go and redeem his whole family. Or as verses 5 to 6 describe, he doesn't have to leave if he actually loves his master. In such cases where there is a love between slave and master, that master must be so fair, that master must be so benevolent and generous that a man and his family would voluntarily serve him and his household for the rest of their lives. If so, then the master would have a public ceremony where he would bore a hole in the ear of the slave and then there would be now a lifelong covenant between them. Now again, you know I'm, I'm not trying to justify this practice as described here, but I am hoping to demonstrate how the Mosaic Law was trying to curb the worst tendencies and the abuses of slavery in order for God's people to be set apart from the nations and to give a powerful witness to the fairness and the benevolence and the generosity of their God, of the Lord God. Now, I know some of you are going to just keep on reading all these verses, and you're going to just get to verse 7 to 11, and you're going to think, okay, yeah, 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 I heard what you said earlier, but, but how is the Lord fair here? How is the Lord benevolent if He doesn't grant the same freedom to female slaves in the seventh year? That's just unjust. That seems very chauvinistic. You give that that provision for male slaves but not for female ones. Look, I I agree that these are hard passages to read. Like, If you just keep reading through this book of the covenant, there are going to be things like that where when I first read it, I recoiled as well. But before we start thumbing our noses at the backwardness of the Bible with what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, let's just try to understand the law's intent within its own historical context. So the female slaves that are being referred to in verses 7 to 11 are serving as additional wives to the master. It's much like how, you know, Jacob, he had Leah and Rachel, but then his father-in-law also gave to him female servants named Zilpah and Bilhah as wives who bore to him some of the 12 sons of Israel. And so that's why here the female slave is not released after six years of service, because she's actually a wife, and she's a mother within the master's household. So it's about preserving the family. It's about preserving the covenant of marriage. That's why it's different in this case. Now, I I know it's still probably going to be unsettling for you, um, but at least Try to see the good restraint that's found here in the law. Because notice how she cannot be treated like property that you just sell. And, and, and she must be treated as a wife or as a daughter in law if you give her, uh, if the master gives her to his son. And if she is neglected, if she is mistreated, she gets to go free. Again, an unparalleled practice compared to their neighbors in the land of Canaan. And so they're here, I'm mean, here in this. Stipulation There is a lot of motivation for a sinful man to treat her well. Now, I know we're not going to have time to go into the same kind of detail for all these laws. I just wanted to point out a few in in, in the beginning verses. But I I do want to make a few more general observations for you. Uh, If you just look at chapter 21, from verse 12 all the way to verse 32, there are just a bunch of laws related to personal injury or death. And some of these sins call for capital punishment, which, if you think about it, is intended to have a restraining effect on sinners. And there's also a provision for refuge when it comes to unintentional homicide. So if you killed someone on accident, there is recourse and protection from a revenge killing, while a judge is, is, is impartially assessing your case. So th- again, these are, these are good restraints here. And then in in cases only involving injury, the principle known as lex talionis, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this principle is applied as a way to restrain disproportional punishments. So punishments must fit the crime. So if someone knocks out your tooth with a fist, you can't retaliate by trying to knock off their head with a club. That's not justice. That's just revenge. And what's more, these injury laws take the responsibility to exact justice out of the hands of the offended party and puts it into the hands of an impartial judge. And so, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was not a motto for personal vendettas. No, it was a principle for proportional punishment to be measured out in court. Uh, There's another larger section of the Book of the Covenant. This is chapters 21, verse 33, all the way to chapter 22, verse 15. And this covers various cases involving property damage or theft. And this is where what's known as the principle of restitution. The principle of restitution is embedded in each of these laws. That's where if you're at fault due to negligence or to thievery, you typically pay double the value of whatever that thing is to cover the loss. And the whole point is to restrain our evil tendencies to break the 10th commandment, to covet, and then to break the 8th commandment to steal our neighbor's property. And again, it's important to place these laws in historical context, because if you think that the book of the covenant is harsh, you just have to realize that under Sharia law, you would cut off the hand of the theft. And if you read the Code of Hammurabi, you cut off his head. So in context and in comparison, restitution, monetary compensation is pretty merciful, and it's a proportional punishment. So friends, the point I'm trying to make here is that what we see from the law is that we are all sinners, and if not for the law and its restraining effect, we would all be carried away by our worst impulses. We would give in to all of our sinful inclinations. So these demands here, these threats, these punishments that are meted out in the Book of the Covenant help restrain sin, evil, and injustice within the nation of Israel. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the Apostle Paul describes the law as a guardian of God's people until, until Christ would come. So the law is there to guard the people until the coming of the Christ. Um, and it's, it's really guarding people from themselves, from their own sinful inclinations, restraining them from greater evil until the Son of God would come to accomplish what the law could not do, to make us good. This leads to our next metaphor, the law as mirror. And like any mirror, it reflects an image. Now, there are two images I have in mind. On one hand, the law reflects the image of the lawgiver. The law was given to Israel to set them apart as a holy nation, holy as the Lord their God is holy. And so in giving his people the law, God was essentially using it as a mirror to to reflect or to refract himself, that they might see more of himself in the law. So the law is righteous as God is righteous. Righteous. The law is compassionate as God is compassionate. The law is just as God is just. The law is merciful as God is merciful. And so if you say you love God, but then you read the law and you're disgusted and appalled by what you find in the law, how is that any different than saying that you love your husband, but then gagging a little whenever you see his reflection in the mirror. I mean, really, how, how, uh, if, if you have little love, little respect for God's law, then what does it say about your love and respect for God himself? The law is a reflection of God. And so as you're being confronted with the law of God, perhaps it's revealing something about you about your heart attitude. Maybe you need to repent of a pretty low view of God's law because it's communicating a pretty low view of God. Friends, that's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to function as a mirror. It reflects the holy image of God. But as we continue to stare into it, we see another reflection. We see an unholy image of ourselves. The law reveals our sin, our weakness. It shows us our filth and our need to be washed clean. The Apostle Paul illustrates this well in Romans chapter 7. He's writing there about how in Christ we are released from the law, having died to the law. But Paul is careful not to suggest that the law is bad in itself. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So, in other words, Paul is saying that without the law, I would have been craving other people's stuff without even realizing how displeasing it is to the Lord, that it's a sin called coveting but just being able to name a sin doesn't actually help me to resist it. So Paul goes on to write verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And so the law, he says, is good in itself itself. But my sinful flesh seizes the opportunity and takes advantage of the law's inability to change my heart, and so the law is misused to awaken in my heart even more sinful desires. Paul's point is that the law tells me what not to do, but not only am I incapable of not doing that thing, I discover in me a desire to want to do far worse sinful things. The law has this way of revealing and exposing my sinfulness and just how undeserving I am to stand before God. Let's think back to chapter 20, verse 18, that section that was read earlier. It's where the Israelites, they see the thunder and the lightning, and, and they hear the sound of the trumpets, and they see smoke rising from Mount Sinai, and it says that they were afraid. It says that they trembled, and they stood far off. And what was it that, that so terrified them? Well, it wasn't the lightning, it wasn't the thunder, it wasn't the smoke. And it, it, it says that it was the voice of God that terrified them the voice of God speaking to them the Ten Commandments, because if they kept hearing God speak to them the law, they felt like they were gonna die. Hearing the law was like throwing up before them this huge mirror showing Israel just how wretched they are as sinners, how deserving they are of punishment, and how needful they are of redemption. And the same point is really being made later on in this book of the covenant. Just just look with me in chapter 22, verse 29. So look at this one verse here. Chapter 2, verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Now for God to ask of us uh, the best of the harvest, the best of our wine presses, and for him to demand the sacrifice of the firstborn among sheep and oxen, that, that makes sense. We'll give it to him. But why is he demanding them to sacrifice their firstborn sons Did you see just that one line just kind of included in there? What's going on there? That seems cruel. That that sounds like a disproportional punishment. Well, this verse, if you think about it, reconnects us with the larger narrative of the book of Exodus. Because remember, back in Egypt, during the 10th plague, the Lord slew all the firstborn sons of Egypt, and He would have he killed the firstborn sons of Israel because they were equally as deserving of judgment and punishment as Egypt. But God graciously provided a means of redemption where every household could slay a spotless lamb as a substitute, and then cover their doorposts with its blood, and judgment would pass over that family, and God would graciously spare their firstborn son. Well, ever since that first Passover, it's not as if Israel suddenly transformed And they were faithfully obeying. No, they kept disobeying. They kept deserving judgment. And so God continued demanding their firstborn sons. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Essentially saying, you give them to me. You sacrifice them to me. Their firstborn sons belong to God. But a family can redeem their son, as the law provides in chapter 13, by bringing uh, bringing the son to God when he's only eight days old. And once again, again, in that moment, you would slay another spotless lamb in place of the son. That's how you redeem that baby boy. My point is that the law is this mirror revealing your sin, revealing your moral inability to keep the law and your deep need for redemption by means of a source outside of yourself, by means of another sacrificial lamb. That's what the law points to. So friends, the the law can't save you, but it can show you your Savior who can. I I shared that illustration last week of how the law works like a mirror showing you your, your dirty face and how we said, you know, you don't then take the mirror and start rubbing it on your face trying to clean you. No, the mirror is supposed to drive you to something else. The mirror is supposed to drive you to the cleansing water. And so in the same way, the book of the covenant, this this mosaic law here is supposed to drive you to the living water of Christ. The law, like a mirror, shows you your deep need for Jesus. That's really what Jesus meant when he said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to be the very thing, the very thing the law is leading people to. And that's why we said earlier that the book of the covenant is not binding for Christians. You have to realize that most of the laws that you read here won't find direct application in your life because their purpose has been fulfilled in Christ. We don't keep ceremonial laws regarding an altar and all these various sacrifices and these rituals because Jesus was the final sacrifice, We don't keep all the cleanliness laws, the food laws, because Jesus has sanctified his people once for all from all uncleanliness. We don't follow these civil laws since the people of God are no longer comprised as a nation state. No, Christ has now made a new humanity out of Jew and Gentile, and he calls it the church. And so the church doesn't keep these laws. Not Not because we now get it and we see just how backwards and unenlightened all these laws were. No, that's not the reason. We don't keep these laws because their mission is complete. Their purpose is fulfilled. They pointed to Christ and now he has come. But just because Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law, that doesn't mean that his followers should just ignore it all just, you know, skip past these chapters. No, there are still moral dimensions to the law that still remain in effect today because they reflect the holiness and the heart of God, and so they still apply. And this leads, of course, to our third metaphor and our final point. The law of God is a restraint against the evil inside our hearts, And the law is a mirror revealing that evil to us and revealing our inability to make ourselves good. It points to Jesus, points to His gospel. If we receive Christ, we will be born again. We will be changed from the inside out. The Spirit of God will come into our lives. He will write the law upon our hearts. He will enable us by His power to actually keep the law, to actually be good That's what happens to everyone who becomes a worshiper and follower of Jesus. That's available to any of you here. And that's why, if that's what's happened to a Christian, if we have the Spirit of God in us and the law written on our hearts for Christians, there still is a use for the law. The law is a teacher. What the law can still do is to teach us how to live a relationship with God, a life that's pleasing to Him. And so this is what some would call the third use of the law, the law as teacher. In his book, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom, the Puritan Samuel Bolton explains the law's relationship to the gospel in this way. He says, The law sends us to the gospel That we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our new way of life. In other words, the law, what we read here, is driving you to the gospel of Jesus Christ to be in right relationship with God. It's through the gospel you're put in a right relationship with your God. And after you have been reconciled with him, the gospel drives you back to the law to now learn how do you live out a right relationship with God. And so as Christians, we strive to keep God's law, not so much because we have to, but because we get to, and because in Christ we're able to. Obedience matters, not as a means to justify ourselves, but as a means to show our love to the Redeemer who justified us. It's like Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what are his commandments? Well, in the Gospels, we see Jesus reinforcing all of the Ten Commandments except for a strict observance of the Sabbath, but he reinforces all the rest. And, and that's really, uh, and, and he goes on to later sum it up with the law of love, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, love, the law of love. It's really the law of Christ, as the Apostle Paul puts it. And so there is a continuity between the law of the covenant, which we're looking at, and the law of Christ. And so that's why we can still read our passage and draw practical applications for the Christian life today. So let me just give you an example of that. I mean, there's so many different examples. I hope later in, in, among, with your family, with your friends, with your small group, you can discuss more about this. But let me give you one. Consider these laws demanding restitution for any damages that you might have caused. What can we learn from that? How do you apply that as a Christian today? Well, we learn that asking forgiveness is always the first step in reconciliation, but when there is a means to make restitution, we do it. So if you borrow a tool from a friend and you break it, you don't just return it with an apology you make restitution. You repair it or you buy them a new one. If your dog digs up your neighbor's flower garden, you don't just say sorry. You replace it and you offer to get your hands dirty, getting in there, replant, helping them replant the garden. Or if you dent a stranger's car in the parking lot without anyone looking, you leave your name and your number and you try to make things right. It's like how Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector in Luke 19? Remember his response after he was utterly changed by an encounter with Jesus in his grace? And he, he not only repented before God, remember how he made restitution before man. He was willing to pay back four times the amount that he had cheated anyone as a tax collector. And it just proves that Zacchaeus wasn't concerned with just meeting the bare requirements of the law because the law just required him to pay back double what you stole. He's going well beyond the law. And and notice how he wasn't just concerned about making right things that he did in the past. He wanted his life from now on, to reflect the law of love, and that's why he told Jesus that he promises to give half of his possessions to the poor. That's the heart of a Christian transformed, convicted by the law, and saved and transformed by the gospel. That's what it looks like to learn from the law and to apply it to our hearts and to let it take shape in our relationships Christians are not concerned with just meeting bare requirements. We are not driven to obey by fear or by threats of punishment. No, we are driven to obey by love for God and love for neighbor. And the law, like any good teacher, directs our steps and shows us how best to live that life of love. Father, thank you for your law as it does speak. It speaks. A word to us a relevant word even in this day as we stand in the new covenant we thank you that it led us to christ and that you have given us your son jesus and for those of us who are followers of your son jesus may we live out now your law as a means of pleasing you and serving others we pray this in jesus name amen